Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 167. And it's a continuation of our episode that we began in episode 166. And it's the story of Rose Cheremy. So, without further ado, let's listen to part two of our story. Episode 167 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Much of this story lay silent until 1967, when it was unearthed again as part of the Garrison investigation. But before we say more about Garrison's involvement, let's close the chapter on her life, because that moment, too, culminated with an accident on a lonely road at night in rural Louisiana. This time, it was on Highway 155, and it was depicted in a local newspaper article about her death. For some reason, the article stated that Rose was living in Duncanville, Louisiana at the time, although it's not clear whether she was actually living there or not. Duncanville is some 100 miles away from where she and the rest of her family had been living. It happened in Upshur County, and the locals were more concerned at that very moment about the trend of fatalities on their rural roads that year. And honestly, they needed to be because it was terrible. 18 fatalities on the roads had happened that year already through September in little old Upshur County, a small part of the world. It was more than dangerous. It was deadly. And the newspaper reported just that. 16 fatalities occurring on rural highways in the county and two within the Gilmer city limits. All of that was beholden of the greater headline and obviously because of the magnitude of the loss of life. But what got lost in all of that was the loss of one of the most important witnesses, ostensibly related to the conspiracy to kill President Kennedy, Rose Jeremy. She wasn't even styled in the article as Rose Jeremy. The latest victim, according to the paper, was Melba Christine Youngblood, listed as age 41 at the time of her death, a name you might not completely recognize because it was but one more of the 35 or so aliases mentioned earlier that this woman lived with in her life. The newspaper article would go on to state that she was fatally injured when struck by a car on Highway 155, more specifically struck as she was actually lying on the highway at the roadside park that existed on that stretch of 155 in Gilmer County. It was about a mile and a half north of a place known as Big Sandy. It happened very late at night, around 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, depending on what account you take as gospel. As the garrison investigation ramped up and it became clear that Rose was going to be a central character for the case that garrison was building around the presence of a conspiracy, and this lead even in 1967, was electrifying in that it seemed that it might actually lead to uncovering some or 
all of the men themselves who actually took the shots at Kennedy. And at the very least, might lead to a deeper understanding of the men who ordered those shots to be taken. Malosh and Fruget began their search for Cheremy. On March 6, 1967, Frank Malosh would meet Lieutenant Fruget in Houston, and they would begin the treasure hunt together for this prize witness. Their first stop was Rose's mother's house, and her name was Mrs. Thomas J. Youngblood, and she lived in Houston. Rose's mother told them that Rose had moved from there to places unknown about two years before. They would make their way to see Rose Cheremy's sister, a Mrs. Wall. Rose's sister informed the investigators that on September 4, 1965, Rose was hit by a car and killed outside of Gladewater, Texas, while walking on Highway 155, approximately one and a half miles east of Big Sandy, Texas, at about 2 o'clock a.m. These facts would later seem to be consistent with what they learned. Quickly, Fruget and Maloche obtained the accident report of this incident and got in touch with a Texas state trooper who dealt with the case, a patrolman named J.A. Andrews. Officer Andrews would restate much of what they already knew and what I just told you, that the subject had died of injuries received from an automobile accident about 1.7 miles east of Big Sandy on Highway 155. And in his account, it had happened around 3 o'clock a.m. on September 4, 1965. Andrews would state that Rose actually died at the hospital that she was taken to in Gladewater. There was an inquest into her death, given the nature of her death, and it was undertaken by the local justice of the peace, and his name was Ross DeLay. The operator of the car was a young man, 23 years of age, named Jerry Don Moore, who was then living in Tyler, Texas. We'll hear more from him, but first, let's tell the rest of the details of the story from Andrew's perspective. After Jerry Don Moore took Rose to the hospital, Andrews stated that Moore related that the victim, that is Rose Jeremy, was apparently lying on the roadway with her head and upper part of her body resting on the traffic lane, and although he had attempted to avoid running over her, Moore ran over the top part of her skull, causing fatal injuries. An investigation of the physical evidence at the scene of the accident was unable to contradict this statement. Officer Andrews stated that due to the unusual circumstances, mainly time, location, and injuries received, and lack of prominent physical evidence, he attempted to establish a relationship between the operator of the vehicle and the victim to determine if any foul play was involved. Andrews would state that the resulting review was negative, meaning no relationship and no evidence of foul play. Officer Andrews would note something quite interesting and something we are going to amplify on in just a moment, something that just didn't add up about Rose's death. Andrews would state that it should be noted that Highway 155 is what Officer Andrews termed a farm-to-market road, running parallel to two U.S. highways, Highway 271 and Highway 80. He would go on to say in his report that it is our opinion from experience that if a subject was hitchhiking 
as this report wants to indicate that this does not run true to form. It is our opinion that the subject would have been on one of the U.S. highways. Let's stop right there. The investigating officer clearly believed that the idea of this woman hitchhiking at 3 a.m. on this lonely country road was clearly improbable. So much so that he actually went to great lengths to see if the driver, Jerry Don Moore, had a relationship with her and had simply tried to fake her accidental death. Officer Andrews goes on to say in his report that although he had some doubt as to the authenticity of the information received, but due to the fact that the relatives of the victim did not pursue the investigation, he closed it as an accidental death. Clearly, the investigating officer, J.A. Andrews, was suspicious of the facts here, but perhaps given Rose's anonymity and perhaps personification as a drifter or a marginal member of society, the strange details of her death were not pursued any further right at the moment of her death, as they should have been. Maloche and Frugier would confirm that fingerprint identification showed that the deceased subject, Melba Christine Mercades, is the same person as the subject they know as Rose Cheremy, the same person who was in custody by us from November 21st, 1963 through November 28th, 1963. Maloche and Frugier would go on to emphasize that it was the same Rose Cheremy that had stated that she once worked for Jack Ruby as a stripper, which, as they said in their report, was verified, and that Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald were definitely associated and known to be, as she stated, bed partners. She further referred to Ruby as alias Pinky, a nickname that turned out to be real when it came to Ruby. In their filed memorandum, they made one other comment that has drawn criticism from critics of the Rose Jeremy story. They ended by saying that other statements made by subject relative to your inquiry are hearsay, but are available upon your request. This broad statement appeared to cast doubt as to the believability of much of the story, or more specifically, much of what Rose may have said, casting over at the idea that it might have been mostly hearsay. Any fact, per se, not explicitly stated as verified, could be a problem. It's understandable, but researchers have certainly placed more than a disproportionate weight on this statement. Rose was gone, and now they knew at least the superficial facts associated with her death. But was there more? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Let's turn for a second and describe how Garrison got involved in all of this. In February 1967, a Francisville, Louisiana businessman named A.H. Magruder telephoned Jim Garrison. Magruder wanted to tell his story. Shortly after the assassination, he had gone on a hunting trip with Dr. Victor Weiss, who was a friend of his and who worked at East Louisiana State Hospital. Magruder wanted to relay the fantastic story of Rose Jeremy and her foreknowledge of the assassination a story that Magruder had been told by Dr. Weiss when they were on a hunting trip, a hunting trip that took place the weekend of the assassination. Garrison would listen closely and then hang up and then call one of his investigators, 
one I've mentioned earlier in this show, Frank Maloche, and he would give him a simple instruction. Find Rose Cheremy. A call to the Louisiana State Police about Cheremy from Garrison and his office would engage Colonel Burbank, and Colonel Burbank knew just who to put on the case of Rose Cheremy. It was Francis Frugier. Frugier would then be assigned by Colonel Burbank as a full-time investigator for Garrison in that area of Louisiana related to the Kennedy case, on loan to Garrison from the state police. He would eventually be knee-deep, along with Ann Dishler, in the Clinton witness investigation as well. Rose's aliases, at first, were a clear impediment to tracking her down and investigating her story. In one early conversation that Frugier and Ann Dishler had with Rose's mother and sister, they both insisted that they did not know anyone named Rose Cheremy. Apparently, one of those aliases that she did not bother to share with her closest of relatives. As Garrison's team began to unravel the facts about Rose Cheremy, including her death, they would discover other facts that were not widely known by authorities in 1963, and they would add other additional color to the story. Victor J. Weiss, M.D., was the chief clinician at East Louisiana State Hospital in Jackson in 1963. He was a psychiatrist, as you might expect. Frank Maloche interviewed Weiss in early 1967 as part of the Garrison investigation and a follow-up to the initial call that Magruder had made to Garrison. As I mentioned, Frank Maloche was one of the investigators on Garrison's team now assigned to this subject of Rose Cheremy. In a memo written by Maloche to Garrison, dated March 13, 1967, Maloche would detail what Weiss told him in an interview, principally that sometime between November 20th and November 26th, 1963, that Dr. Weiss stated that Rose had told him that she knew both Ruby and Oswald and had seen them sitting together on occasions at Ruby's Club. Critics will say that these conversations may not have taken place until after the 22nd, but there is ample evidence that she was making conversations with others before the 22nd about the same topics. So it's somewhat academic here when it comes to Weiss. Simply, he is but one more credible witness, but not the only witness with information about the veracity and timing of these statements, as you will see in a moment. And a few people may have had to help him with his recollection, at least as far as the timing of things. Frank Maloche interviewed A.H. Magruder as follow-up to the Garrison discussion. According to Maloche, he confirmed Magruder's understanding that Rose Cheremy made statements directly to Dr. Weiss. And Dr. Weiss had told Magruder about it shortly thereafter, on the hunting trip that weekend and that Rose apparently made the statements prior to the president's death, namely that the president and other Texas public officials were going to be killed on their visit to Dallas. Investigator Maloche had interviewed A.H. Magruder first before talking with Weiss, so it was natural after hearing this from Magruder and confirming what Magruder had already told Garrison over the phone, it was natural that Maloche would then ask for verification of it when he spoke with Dr. Weiss. However, 
Dr. Weiss, when asked about this by Investigator Maloche, now in 1967, well, Dr. Weiss stated that he couldn't recall whether this statement was told to him by Rose Cheremy before or after the assassination. Keep in mind that he did not deny that Cheremy had said it, nor did he deny that he had heard it, and nor did he deny that he had repeated it to A.H. Magruder on their hunting trip. Naturally, you can understand how someone might like to forget that they heard such a statement before the assassination. (laughs) Can you imagine the heavy burden someone would have carried had they heard it before the assassination and then done nothing? Well, that is exactly what these folks did. But in fairness to all of them at the hospital, they were used to dealing with the ranting of desperate souls in a psychiatric state or a drug-induced circumstance. And shouting the extraordinary, honestly, that was probably a pretty ordinary scene in the emergency room of a psychiatric hospital. Still, it's interesting here. Perhaps easy to leap to the idea that Dr. Weiss hadn't forgotten, really, whether or not he heard it before or after the assassination. And perhaps he didn't forget, but he also didn't want to be self-proclaimed as someone who heard about this before the assassination and did nothing, tagged with that moral burden. Yes, that's speculation on my part, but probably the case. Testimony of what he said by Magruder and another doctor, Don Bowers, seems to clarify that they heard these statements and it was clear that Dr. Weiss had indicated that they were made before the assassination and he portrayed it to them at the time that way, that this surely was the case. But his later testimony to the HSC is not consistent with that. So there is conflict here. It is one of those many wanders down a finger of the lake that just won't ever completely resolve the conflict and testimony. But my guess is that he did hear it before the assassination. Oh well, I guess the truth about it is just another enduring secret. As I said, there was more controversy that arose in later years related to Dr. Weiss's testimony during the HSCA investigation of President Kennedy's murder. In his deposition to HSCA investigators, he would say something not heard before. He had become unequivocal in his testimony now that he had not met Rose until after the date of the assassination. And he also stated that he had been referred to see Rose and that the referral occurred on the Monday following the assassination through another doctor named Dr. Don Bauer. Remarkably, the HSCA never bothered to try and locate and depose Dr. Bauer. But years later, at a JFK Lancer conference, this matter was discussed, and later, researcher Robert Dorff, in 2002, would track down Dr. Bauer and show him Dr. Weiss's testimony to the HSCA. Dr. Bowers was in disagreement with Weiss's statements, and Dr. Bauer would go on record with a formal letter to try and set the record straight after the alleged misinformation was debated in Dallas. Dr. Bauer would clarify that he first heard the extraordinary story of what Jeremy said, and he first heard it from Weiss on a dove hunting trip that they were both on together 
over that weekend of the assassination, presumably the same trip that A.H. Magruder makes reference to. Clearly, this is before the Monday that was referred to in Weiss's HSCA testimony, more specifically on November 24th. And he further clarifies that the referral could not have occurred on that Monday, the 25th, following the assassination, as Weiss testified to, because Bauer worked two jobs, with the other being at a hospital in New Orleans. And that is where he was at on Monday, the 25th, working in New Orleans. And he would state that basically during that time frame, he always worked Mondays in New Orleans. Weiss was pretty uncomfortable about his circumstance. The clinical head of this institution, and now Light, shed on the fact that he had been likely told this information by a patient of the impending murder of the president and done nothing with it. Understandable that after the fact, he would be uncomfortable. I would be too. He was culpable, as were others in this scenario. It seems awful dubious that Weiss couldn't remember whether he had heard it before or after the assassination. It just seems like that would be something that would come to top of mind in such a circumstance. And it is also clear that his statement that he heard about Rose Jeremy on the following Monday after the assassination through a referral from Dr. Bauer is also simply not true. The statements and testimony by Dr. Bauer clearly contradict that, as do the statements of A.H. Magruder. Garrison's men would soon get around to questioning the owner of the Silver Slipper Lounge. Recall that his name was Hadley MacManuel. Manuel told Fruget that Rose Jeremy had arrived with two men that he knew were engaged in the business of running prostitutes in from Florida. In his version of the story, when Jeremy became drunk and out of control, one of the men slapped her around and then threw her outside. As Joan Mellon accounts in her book, Farewell to Justice, Fruget showed the bar owner a stack of photographs in an attempt to identify Rose Jeremy's companions that night who accompanied her to the Silver Slipper. Who were these men? Well, Hadley MacManuel had picked out of that stack of photographs the likes of Sergio Arcacha-Smith and a fellow Cuban exile whom MacManuel identified as Osanto and who was, in actuality, Emilio Santana. As we have mentioned in past episodes of JFK, The Enduring Secret, Sergio Arcacha-Smith was closely associated with David Ferry and also with Guy Bannister. And Santana and Arakasha Smith were both employed by the CIA. Santana himself was a member of the CIA-funded exile group Alpha 66, and he split his time between New Orleans and Miami in the early 1960s. As Joan Mellon notes, when Fruget was questioned about these matters by congressional investigators, Fruget himself asked the committee if they had found diagrams of the sewer system in Dealey Plaza. Why did he ask this strange question? Well, he was sure that sewer diagrams had been found in Sergio Arcacha Smith's apartment in Texas, and Fruget believed 
that Dallas Police Captain Will Fritz had originally told him about the diagrams. This startling fact is indeed true. And as you might expect, our conscious Smith consistently stated that he had no knowledge of these matters, and he successfully avoided extradition back from Texas to Louisiana during the Garrison investigation. This is a fascinating side story, as you might be expecting, and we will have to let this sleeping dog lie for now. But let's do a separate episode on the sewer plans. Remember the far outlandish story about the possible shot from the sewer? I know, crazy. But as I have said, everywhere you look in this case, fact is stranger than fiction. And given this set of facts, we should explore this whole concept a bit more. But let's not digress to that just yet. Back to our story of Rose Jeremy. There are some critics of the Garrison investigation that want to downplay this identification of these two men. They do so by pointing to the aggressive identification techniques used in other parts of the Garrison investigation and attempt to make the argument that these same aggressive techniques were used in this process when dealing with Mac Manuel. But keep in mind, these were different investigators whose origin was not the New Orleans Police Department, but rather the Louisiana State Police. Certainly, Manuel himself never seems to have raised the issue, and it seems to be unwarranted when discussing the likes of Francis Fruget and Ann Dishler, despite the fact that Frank Maloche from Garrison's office was involved directly as well at the time. As a side note related to the Silver Slipper, there have been many rumors over the years that the Silver Slipper, where the incident took place in this episode, was indeed owned by Jack Ruby, and that possibly the money to open and run the club was fronted to Ruby by Carlos Marcello. No doubt, those rumors persisted among locals right there in Eunice, Louisiana. But no documentation has ever been produced to support that theory. And adding to the confusion was the fact that Ruby may have operated a club with the same name in Dallas at some point. Howard Hughes himself also had a club with the same name in Vegas. Get my point? Things get jumbled sometimes and clumped together. But who knows? I'm not saying it wasn't true. I'm just saying. In a strange tie-in, the FBI failed to inform Garrison about its November 28, 1963 interview with a Margaret K. Kaufman in Pennsylvania. Margaret Kaufman had contacted the state police about a silver slipper flyer she had found. That's right, a tiny little flyer related to this crappy little bar in the middle of nowhere in Louisiana. Somehow, just five days after the assassination, it had made its way all the way back to Pennsylvania. And on the back of this little flyer, in pencil, was the name Lee Oswald. And just to the right of that was penciled in Rubenstein, comma, Jack Ruby. And at the bottom, penciled in, was Dallas TX. How did such an obscure document with movie-like evidential qualities penciled on the back of it 
make its way all the way up north in such a bizarre circumstance. And forget about this little journey up north for a moment. Think of the obvious ramifications. Who penned it and why? What was the connection or event that first spawned a connection to these two men and a further connection of these two men with a silver slipper? Well, the questions are obvious given our story so far today. The short answer was that she lived right next to a Cuban doctor, Julio Fernandez. But who was he? And how did he end up with this document? Folks, you can't write this stuff. We'll have to leave the Julio Fernandez question for another moment. This strange discovery led to additional work by Ann Dishler and Francis Fruget. They began to investigate reports that Lee Harvey Oswald had been spotted in towns radiating out of Baton Rouge. But people in those small towns were more than hesitant. In fact, they were frightened to talk to Dishler and Fruget. According to Joan Mellon, in order to get them to open up, investigator Dishler would sometimes identify herself as a reporter for the Lafayette Daily Advertiser. It's beyond the scope of this episode to go into the details of this, but suffice it to say that their efforts turned up positive results. One witness, Cal Kelly, was positive he had seen Oswald in June 1963 at a restaurant in Walker, Louisiana, having donuts and coffee. The waitress remarked to Oswald that he looked like a stranger, and Oswald stared back and said, Probably I am. I just came from Cuba, and I caught a freight truck out of Florida, and I'm on my way to Dallas as soon as the driver gets some sleep. Kelly would recount that in the parking lot was a truck with a man asleep at the wheel, When Kelly and his 12-year-old grandson watched the assassination events on television, they were both positive that the man they had seen in the diner was Lee Harvey Oswald. There were other leads that Ann Dishler and Fruget would follow up on, and soon there was a pretty clear evidence trail that someone was creating a path of activity in that corridor for Lee Harvey Oswald. For some unknown reason, up and down that corridor from Louisiana to Texas. Again, more on that in another short bonus episode after we finish up today's story. Ultimately, Jim Garrison put aside this set of leads in favor of an incident he believed was more promising. For Ann Dishler had discovered that people in East Feliciana Parish had observed Oswald in the company of both David Ferry and Clay Shaw. And of course, this path of investigation produced the Clinton witnesses. Sadly, as a result, all the witnesses who recounted their stories of Oswald and the body double in that corridor would fade into the woodwork and become a footnote in the history that is this case. Okay, enough of that wander. Back to the last bit of story related to Rose Jeremy's death. The newspaper account has the time of the accident the time that Jerry Don Moore ran over Rose Cheremy as 2.15 in the morning. Officer Andrews lists the time at 3 a.m. It's only 45 minutes difference, but one wonders why and how the discrepancy occurred. And yet that's not the only discrepancy related to what occurred late that night and into the wee morning hours of September the 4th, 1965. 
It was a stretch of highway that Jerry Don Moore had just driven through some 15 minutes earlier, and he had done it without seeing any sign of Rose Cheremy. Why a 23-year-old was driving back and forth on that highway at 2 or 3 in the morning was never explained, but apparently that was the case. At any rate, Jerry Don Moore was now seeing things that he hadn't seen before as he came barreling down the road there. He quickly came upon three or four suitcases laid along the center yellow line, as if they had been positioned in the middle of the road. He had to swerve to the right to miss the luggage, and that was when he noticed the woman lying on the side of the road. It looked like she was sleeping, he said. She had her arms folded underneath her head, like she was sleeping, with her elbows out. She was laid out parallel to the highway, on the right side, and she wasn't in the road. Maybe her elbows were, but it was just barely in the road. She was more in the gravel and the grass in the ditch to her right. Moore said that he slammed on his brakes, and for what it's worth, this 23-year-old who had been drinking that night swears that he didn't hit her, and that he swerved enough to miss her and ended up in a ditch. He got out of his car, and he immediately went to check on her. What he saw next was frightening. She had tread marks on her arms, yet he was driving a car with bald tires. Tread marks were hardly possible in his opinion. He thought it was as if she had been run over by someone else. Later, he was asked the obvious question. Did he think the mysteriously positioned pieces of luggage in the middle of the highway were strategically placed with the intention of forcing a motorist to swerve and hit the laid-out Jeremy. His answer was straightforward. Hell yeah, he said, as night is night and day is day. It was set up to run over that woman. Of course, the other side of the story is that 23-year-old Mr. Moore admitted to driving some 70 or 80 miles an hour and admitted to drinking Seagram's Seven Crown, his favorite alcohol, in some quantity that night. He would claim that he stopped a car of black men and women traveling north on the highway, but they didn't seem anxious to help move the suitcases out of the road as he had asked them to. What he claimed to a witness next was eerie, to say the least. He noticed a red Chevrolet parked on the side of the road opposite of the spot where he found Jeremy. It was dark, of course, but he figured it to be a 1963 or 1964 model, a relatively new car. It was in the roadside park area. It was cherry red, and the lights were off, and the engine was off. Moore said that he couldn't see anyone in the vehicle, but he wondered, was someone in that car? Could someone have been in that car, watching this scene unfold in the darkness? Did someone need to verify that a loose end, like Rose, had been knotted up? Jerry Don Moore wondered about this. Moore picked the woman up off the ground and loaded her into the back seat of his car, and then drove into town to seek medical attention for her. He would stop briefly in Hawkins, Texas, where he was told by a policeman that the nearest hospital was in Gladewater. But the police officer knew of a doctor in Hawkins, and the officer offered a police escort to the doctor's office. They would go straight to the doctor's home, and on Jerry Don Moore's arrival, they would lay out Jeremy 
in the doctor's front yard, right on the grass that was still wet from the dew of the night. The doctor examined her and assessed quickly that she would need to get to the hospital, and he called for an ambulance, and he had Jeremy taken to Gladewater Memorial Hospital. Moore would recall that the doctor administered a couple of shots and commented that she was suffering from brain damage. The scared 23-year-old young man would follow the ambulance to the hospital, and then once there, and confirming that she was delivered, would turn around and return to the scene of the accident, returning to the luggage, ostensibly to retrieve her luggage for her, but possibly in search of clues. And to that end, he would open up some of the luggage to see if he could identify her. Rather fatuously, he would declare later that he knew she was a whore because he found a douche bag or a hot water bottle in one of her suitcases. It was, in his words, a telltale sign of a prostitute. And his statement was a telltale sign of a scared young man. Rose died a few hours later after being delivered to the hospital at about 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. By one account, she never regained consciousness after she was brought to the hospital. According to Joan Mellon, she was still conscious, though, when trooper A.J. Andrews came into the picture, and she said that Rose had some key things to say to him. First, that she was a stripper for Jack Ruby, and second, that Ruby and Oswald were bed partners. In any case, it is alleged that at some point, Jeremy remarked, to one of the ambulance crew or hospital staff that she had worked for Jack Ruby. Jerry Don Moore would get home to Tyler, Texas at 4.30 a.m. Worried and concerned and possibly feeling guilty, he soon found himself back at the hospital to check on Rose Jeremy. During his absence, they had called in a doctor from Dallas, but it was to no avail. She had passed while he was gone. He was seemingly shocked, and he didn't think that she was in that bad of a condition. He would state that there wasn't a single drop of blood on his car, on her, or in his back seat. He would state that the hospital had told him, after the Dallas doctor got there, that she didn't last long. Oddly enough, he arrived back at the hospital at 10 a.m., and he was told that she had already passed by then, even though the official death certificate places the time of death at 11 a.m., one hour later. Sloppiness? Maybe. There was an investigation opened, and it was shut almost as quickly. The Texas Highway Patrol came and examined Moore's car. They found no blood anywhere or damage to his vehicle, essentially confirming his story. And all they did was, strangely enough, seize his driver's license, which they kept for about six months before returning it to him. Some say that Jeremy's death certificate indicated a bullet hole to the head, yet other accounts indicate that the death certificate makes no such assertion. There certainly was no evidence of that in any other part of the medical records maintained at the hospital, or the story told by Jerry Don Moore the driver of the car, or others who examined her at the hospital. Moore gathered her up and took her to a doctor immediately after the accident, and he surely would have seen a bullet hole in the head. The death certificate apparently indicates that the cause of death was accidental. Garrison agreed that this finding was indeed strange and pressed to see the autopsy report. 
but it was not produced for him. And in fact, it has never been produced. So Garrison began to press to have Rose's body exhumed. But like other matters dealing with jurisdiction in Texas, Garrison got little or no cooperation from the Texas authorities. And his request for exhumation was denied. Rose's son, now a doctor, Dr. Michael Mercatis, is believed to be the only person who has ever seen the autopsy report outside of local officials. And he has had plenty of questions himself. But aside from questions surrounding her care at the hospital that night, the bigger questions are front and center and big asking. What was Rose Cheremy doing out there that night? Was she really with the three sailors that were mentioned in the discussion with her sister? If so, did the event involve sex in some way with the sailors? Did it get rough? Did it turn into rape? Or was it none of those things? Was it something purely sinister related to the assassination case? No one knows. It's all speculation, by the way. And the truth of it will likely never be known. It, like so many other aspects of this case, will remain an enduring secret. There are, of course, other oddities about this whole circumstance that we should touch upon before we finish up today's episode. Yep, if all of this was not odd enough, how about the coincidental tie-in of Lee Harvey Oswald applying for a job in a remote little town in East Louisiana at the very same hospital that Rose Jeremy ends up in as a patient? And if that was not odd enough, here is one more Jackson-Clinton tie-in that dovetails nicely with our story today. Folks listening to all the episodes of our podcast will think back to my telling of the story of the Clinton witnesses. In one of those episodes, you may recall where in the story, I very briefly mentioned a character named Billy Kemp, the extraordinary story of a Clinton-Jackson area pilot who was offered 25000 to fly a group of yet-to-be-announced passengers out of the country. And the offer was made just before the week of the assassination. The Billy Kemp story seems to have reached the garrison office via an informant named Tom Williams, who also told an odd story about a Jackson resident named Gladys Fletcher Palmer. According to the informant Williams, Gladys Palmer's ex-husband Matt said that his wife, that is Gladys Fletcher Palmer, had been employed by Jack Ruby in Dallas, and that two weeks before the assassination she, too, had arrived back in Jackson, driving a black Lincoln Continental. But then Gladys checked herself in to guess where? Yep, the East Louisiana State Hospital for treatment of alcoholism. Guess what happened while Gladys was there at East Louisiana State Hospital? Two hours before John F. Kennedy was killed, Gladys Palmer, now staying in the same hospital at the same time as Rose Jeremy, was alleged to have stated, this is the day of the president's assassination. What are the odds of that happening? Two former Jack Ruby employees in the same hospital in rural Louisiana the day of the president's death, saying that the president would be killed that day and killed right there in Dallas. It's a fantastic story. I know. I have to admit that. And in some ways, it's just plain eerie. 
because it points even more strongly to a possible tie-in of the president's assassination with Jack Ruby. Somehow, some way. Rose Jeremy was the kind of person who would pass from this life into the next with very little fanfare. Let's face it, hardly anyone knowing or caring about her passing and hardly a word spoken in the wake of her passing by even those few who should have been close, her mother and her sister. Yet her young son would, in his later years, tell an incredibly loving story of her, the kind of kind-hearted remembrances reminiscent of personal history that only a loved one like him could tell. He grew up to be a medical doctor, and I'm sure she would have been very proud of him. Perhaps the only real and complimentary epitaph was that bestowed upon her by Oliver Stone. Stone had the beautiful and young Sally Kirkland play Rose Jeremy in the movie JFK. In truth, by 1963, Rose Jeremy was about 40 years old, and her drug addiction, along with the rough and tumble hard life that she was living, had long stolen most of any physical beauty that, that she had been born with. Drug addiction grips people and takes them from what they are and what they might become and dooms them to a miserable existence in this life, sapping everything that might be joyous, everything but the recurring algorithm of the addiction. The only thing left at times is the heaven and the hell of the addiction itself, a heaven and a hell that is often recounted by its victims. Sadly, most people don't see folks who are addicted as regular human beings. They avoid them. And in this case, there was an individual, a human being, that might have helped to have solved one of the most important murder cases of the 20th century. Instead, she went the way of so many who are caught up in the web of this dreaded disease. Her ending was suspicious, for sure. And maybe Rose Jeremy deserves to be in that special category of suspicious JFK deaths. Certainly, there is ample evidence to think that such a designation is not really debatable. But maybe she was simply the victim of neglect, the kind that comes when you are so shunned by almost everyone, the moment that this dreaded disease comes upon a human being. We don't know, really. It will be one more of the enduring secrets related to the JFK assassination. What is not debatable is that, had she lived, lived for just a little while longer, she would have made it to Garrison's office. And she may have told the tale and connected the dots and put the investigation over the hump instead of time running out with the ball still in the red zone, but not in the end zone. In the book, A Rose by Many Other Names, author Todd Elliott recounts that Melba Christine McCotties had as many as 35 aliases according to FBI and Louisiana State Police records, and he recounted those that were known to him at the time of his publication. In addition to Rose Jeremy, there were 13 more on his list. 
Mrs. Albert Rodman, Patsy Sue Allen, Christine Youngblood, Mickey Rodman, Melba Christine, Melba Rodman, Melba Christina Nichols, Rosalie Stewart, Zada Marie Johnson, Connie Mackey, Penny Sue Marcades, Zeta Lingano, Zeta Garaccino. Yes, indeed, just as the book title says, A Rose by Many Other Names. During the podcast, we referred to a letter written by Dr. Don Bowers to researcher Robert Dorff in 2002. The letter was meant to clarify what Dr. Bowers believed to be an inaccuracy in Dr. Weiss's HSCA testimony regarding an exchange that occurred between Dr. Weiss and Dr. Bowers in the days right after JFK's assassination. Researcher Robert Dorff interviewed Dr. Down Bowers in 2002, and Bowers wrote this letter for Dorff to read at the JFK Lancer Organization's November 2003 Dallas Convention. It opens with a subject line, Rose, Jeremy, and East Louisiana State Hospital. Dear Bob, this letter is intended to set the record straight regarding my alleged statements concerning Rose Jeremy in conjunction with her November 1963 stay at East Louisiana State Hospital in Jackson, Louisiana. You and I discussed this quite extensively during a series of telephone calls in early 2002. At that time, you read a section on page 200 and 201 of Appendix 10 to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which stated, and I quote, The commission interviewed one of the doctors on staff at the East Louisiana State Hospital who had seen Jeremy during her stay there at the time of the Kennedy assassination. The doctor corroborated aspects of the Jeremy's allegations. Dr. Victor Weiss verified that he was employed as a resident physician at the hospital in 1963. He recalled that on Monday, November 25, 1963, he was asked by another physician, Dr. Bowers, to see a patient who had been committed on November 20th or 21st. Dr. Bowers allegedly told Weiss that the patient, Rose Jeremy, had stated before the assassination that President Kennedy was going to be killed. Dr. Weiss's statement is untrue. I was not at the hospital on Monday, November the 25th. I spent the day working at my regular job at the Baptist Hospital in New Orleans, Louisiana. My regular tenure at East Louisiana State Hospital ended in July 1963 when I moved to New Orleans and commenced work at the Baptist Hospital in that city. I worked weekdays, Monday through Friday. On weekends, I would drive to Jackson to earn extra money working in the medical division at the East Louisiana State Hospital. I never saw Rose Jeremy and only found out about her allegations on Sunday, November the 24th, 1963 during a dove hunting engagement with Dr. Weiss. It was he who told me what she allegedly told Weiss and possibly others. I was never contacted by anyone from the House Select Committee on Assassinations. When I began getting telephone calls from the assassination researchers informing me about the statements attributed to me 
as memorialized in Weiss's HSCA testimony, I called Dr. Weiss and asked him why he had said these things. Weiss rebuffed my inquiry and flatly refused to discuss it. I found that very odd, as I had known and respected him for many years. I still cannot understand why he made those statements. On mature reflection, I recalled that during our dove hunting foray on Sunday, November the 24th, Dr. Weiss told me about Jeremy's allegations. That was the first time I heard any of this. I remember that incident because while driving back to New Orleans that day, I heard on the radio that Oswald had been shot in the basement of the Dallas Police Department. Years later, I personally reviewed Rose Jeremy's hospital records at the East Louisiana State Hospital, and I was unable to find any reference to her alleged remarks about an impending assassination of President Kennedy. I'm sorry I was unable to attend the JFK Lancers Forum in Dallas and hope this letter makes clear that I had no contact with Rose Jeremy. Sincerely, Don E. Bowers, M.D. In our story, we borrow heavily today from four principal sources. A Farewell to Justice by Joan Mellon. Let Justice Be Done by William Davey. A Rose by Many Other Names by Todd Elliott. And an essay by James D'Eugenio on the Rose Jeremy matter. All of these are excellent resources for you to read in their entirety. And I would fully encourage you to buy the books and read the essay. Thank you for listening to episode 167 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.